0: This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. episode we're talking about Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. Published in 1952, Wise Blood is Flannery O'Connor's first novel and shows many of the themes that will come to characterise her short but extraordinary career. The novel concerns the crisis of faith of Hazel Motes, who has just returned from the battlefields of the Second World War to his family home in a fictional city in the American South. Still recovering from the wounds he received in battle, Hazel has a series of disturbing, comic, violent encounters with an eccentric and unpredictable cast of characters. O'Connor viewed Wise Blood as a comic novel, though with a serious core. Hazel is a nihilist, but O'Connor puts him firmly on the path to redemption. Despite its cast of grotesques and the black humour on display, it is a work of complex religious themes, and has come to be known as a classic of 20th century American fiction. In his 99 novels, Burgess describes Wise Blood as a quote, novel like no other. The individuality is intense, the comedy fierce, the truth undeniable. Flannery O'Connor was born in Savannah, Georgia, in 1925. She studied at the prestigious Iowa Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa, and though we are discussing her first novel, she became known as a short story writer most famously with the collection A Good Man is Hard to Find. Her second novel, The Violent Bear It Away, was published in 1960. Since her early death in 1964 at the age of 39, her legacy has grown. Her alma mater, Georgia College, opened the Andalusia Institute, named after O'Connor's home in Georgia. The Institute supports scholarship into the works of Flannery O'Connor, nourishes writing and the creative arts, hosts public events and resources for readers, including video discussions of Wise Blood. You can find the link to the Andalusia Institute's website in the description of this episode. To discuss Wise Blood, we invited Alison Arant onto the podcast. Alison is Associate Professor and Chair of the English Department at Wagner College in Staten Island, New York. Her research focuses on the American South, African-American literature and women's literature. She has recently contributed to the collection Southern Comforts Drinking in the U.S. South with her essay on Black Blues Women, Freedom and Alcohol in the Prohibition South. Her most recent publication is Reconsidering Flannery O'Connor, which she edited with Jordan Colfer. This collection examines new theoretical approaches to O'Connor's work and interrogates established views of her fiction and legacy. It is available now from the University Press of Mississippi. The description of this episode contains all relevant links and a list of the books mentioned. Here's Will Carr of the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to Alison Arant in October 2021.
1: Hi Alison, welcome to the podcast and thanks so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Um, we're, today we're going to be talking about uh, Wise Blood, Flannery O'Connor's fantastic 1952 novel, and well, and Flannery O'Connor more generally, because uh, she appears as one of Anthony Burgess's favourites in his selection, 99 novels. But before talking about him, I wondered if we could talk a bit about you. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about how you first encountered Flannery O'Connor and, and Wise Blood, and what were your first impressions of her work?
2: Um, so I, I would, I think the first time I read Flannery O'Connor was as an undergraduate student, although I know I knew her name before that. I was kind of a, a book nerd child and managed to worm my way into a book club with a bunch of adults. I was the only, I think I was 14 or 15 when they kind of let me in. And one of the uh, members of that book club, uh, well, they had read a book, they had read Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor before. I ever joined. And I remember that it was controversial, that, that the person who recommended it really loved it, and the rest of the book club hated it. And so I think my first <laughs> kind of awareness of her was that she was something of a lightning rod, um, which actually isn't a bad way, I think, to to really come to her work. I think in some ways that kind of divided response continues to be something I see among readers and scholars of her work. So, But, I, but later on, I know I read uh, her short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find in a in a kind of entry-level literature course in undergrad. And um, I think my response was kind of a combination of delight and shock and puzzlement. I I think I always have found her a very funny writer and a very engaging writer. She writes a lot about family scenarios where, you know, kids sort of think they know better than their parents and everyone's irritated with everyone and people are in domestic spaces and kind of on each other's nerves. And so I think it's easy to relate to all of that. Um, But then often she also has these kind of, well, pretty much, I would say almost formulaically has these kind of jarring moments where, um, you know, something happens and it can be anything from Um, you know, a minor accident to something fatal. Um, And and that there is often that kind of turn where there's some sort of, um, you know, uh, action that that is in some ways kind of both disruptive to what had been happening and even to kind of the previous mood of the story in some cases. Um, But that also really is actually playing out what the previous, um, you know, parts of the story have been setting up. So, so those were some of my first impressions.
1: And well, that's interesting. You say that Wise Blood was a, a, a controversial uh, text, I suppose, even among the enthusiasts for O'Connor's work. I mean, maybe you could tell us a bit about, about Wise Blood itself and, you know, what's it about and what could we expect to find in it?
2: So I would say I've been thinking about this and I think to kind of put it in the simplest terms possible, I would say that Wise Blood is a novel about religious obsession Um, And the main character, Hazel Moats is in a lot of ways obsessed with repudiating Jesus. He's a returning World War II veteran who has just completed four years of military service. And I think that sort of strangely, perhaps, his desire to reject Jesus comes out of kind of a deep grappling with this awareness of Jesus as this kind of all-demanding figure. So Hazel had a grandfather who was a fundamentalist preacher, and O'Connor writes that Jesus was hidden in his head like a stinger. And I think even that line kind of give, gives you a sense of the of the kind of, um, yeah, just the electrified quality that Jesus has for Hazel. Um, so the grandfather kind of preaches Jesus as this soul-hungry figure and very totalizing in his passion for the soul of every sinner, very determined to have every sinner in the end. And he kind of preaches Jesus as this inescapable, all-demanding, disorienting figure. And I think that kind of ironically, that's in some ways what prompts uh, Hazel's efforts to reject Jesus. Uh, so O'Connor writes that um, when Hazel was 12, he knew he would be a preacher. Uh, but what ends up happening in the course of the novel is that Hazel becomes something of an anti-preacher. And he founds what he calls the Church of Christ without Christ and and preaches that and uh, has a lot of encounters where he's um, kind of badgering people about their belief in Jesus in one direction or another um even as he's you know ultimately uh arguing that you know Jesus didn't matter and that there's no such thing as fall the fall because there's nothing to fall from and there's no such thing as redemption because there was no fall so Um, But it's, you know, it's kind of apropos of nothing that he that he's having these encounters with people and and bringing up Jesus in the first place. So it's like he, he sort of raises the question only to kind of try to argue against it. But in most of the cases or in many of them, no one else is even talking about Jesus. So I could say more about the plot, but I don't. I really don't want to spoil it too much for people who haven't read it. No, no, but don't
1: spoil the plot. But no, I won't. you're given a, a sense of the kind of, um, yes. of, the environment of it, I suppose, of the landscape of the of the novel, which is this, I mean, I hesitate to, to use the phrase Southern Gothic, but I mean, it, it is set in a, you know, a, a a southern, southern place in a southern town or city, mm-hmm. and uh, there is this religious culture, I suppose, Absolutely. that Hazel Motes keeps uh, keeps bashing up against, keeps um, right. having conflict with. That's right. Um, do you think this is representative of uh, Flannery O'Connor's other fiction? I mean, is it, is this the the world that she keeps returning to?
2: I I think so. I would say, in many ways, it is. I think that the many of her preoccupations, her Christian preoccupation. I think the the dark humor of the book and I think its violence are all pretty consistent with O'Connor's work on the whole. I reread it in preparation for our conversation today and I think it did strike me as in some ways darker than other O'Connor works. It's if if someone asks me about O'Connor and asks for a recommendation, I usually I don't necessarily say go go read Wise Blood, although I think there's nothing wrong with diving in with Wise Blood, but I would kind of probably recommend someone dipped their toes into the short stories and then if they like that kind of continue to wise blood because I think it is it's a book that really foregrounds ugliness in a lot of ways which I think can be you know fun for some readers and maybe off-putting for others like truly almost every character who gets introduced you get told sort of what's what's ugly or unattractive about them. They're, they're grotesque, aren't they? Yeah, the grotesque, grotesque. I think that's right. It? it really does lead with the grotesque, um, almost to the exclusion. Not, not, I mean, I think there are some sort of striking descriptions of the sky at different points. And it's not as though it's it's completely a world devoid of beauty, but it is it is a grotesque world that she creates. And so, you know, for readers that like that kind of thing, they'll like it. And for others, perhaps not.
1: It is certainly an intense experience uh, right. reading, reading all of Wise Blood. And yes, I can see why you might point towards some of the short fiction, which are perhaps, I mean, well, I suppose Wise Blood itself was made up of a number of shorter pieces that's right, to, that's right. to begin with. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the cumulative effect is, uh, is quite a lot to take on, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But uh, and maybe that's one of the reasons why it uh, is not always liked, even by enthusiasts for O'Connor's work. How do you think the, the novel was received when it first appeared?
2: I would say there was a mixture. I mean, on the one hand, O'Connor was trained at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. And so uh, by virtue of that experience, she was really already well-connected to a lot of literary taste taste makers. Uh, She was in proximity to Robert Penn Warren and Cleante Brooks and Alan Tate and others. And and so in that way, I think um, she was getting a lot of encouragement both publicly and privately from some pretty influential writers and figures, people like Robert Lowell and Caroline Gordon and J.F. Powers. Um, uh, R. W. B. Lewis wrote a 1953 review where he compared Wise Blood to Kafka and to the work of Nathaniel West. Um, In 1958, uh, the uh, uh, publication Critique devoted part of their issue to her work. So there was, I think, some recognition on the part of uh, members of the literary establishment that it was a serious novel and a a great novel and an important one. On the other hand, I think probably closer to home for O'Connor, There was a much more mixed response. Um, You can read in Gene Cash's biography about how it kind of horrified the locals in Milledgeville where O'Connor was living at the time. And there are some pretty funny and kind of, you know, if you think about it from Flannery O'Connor's standpoint, maybe kind of sad anecdotes about how family members of hers would buy the book and send it to priests that they knew, and then they would go on to read it themselves. And then they would write back to the priests and say, please send that book back and don't read it because they found it disturbing. Um, there, There's a story about how the, the um, Georgia College, her alma mater, asked her to do a reading from Wise Blood and she did and then there was a kind of like well we'll never do that again kind of <laughs> response to it so i think i think for a lot of people who knew her and her family um there was a kind of you know a, a real kind of horror of the book um and and maybe even some shock uh that someone who was you know um a catholic and a devout catholic at that would write a book that involved a lot of violence and sex and it's not as though the book goes into kind of gr- gory Depictions of the details of those things, but it's definitely there and it's unmissable. And I think, you know, if you're someone who's very concerned with um, not not offending people, um, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be your your thing. So so I think that there is that, and, and I think too in the local press, you know, local uh, newspapers and so on, when they covered it would say things like, you know, what a promising, nice young writer. And we look forward to when she'll write about nice people, you know? So I think, I think people kind of had a, had a framework for thinking about maybe Southern white women in particular and the kinds of books they expected them to write. And this was not in that mold. And so um, I think even as the literary establishment did, did kind of recognize it and praise it, um, there were people who felt, you know, offended and lost and kind of everything in between.
1: Well, that it didn't stop her. Of course, I mean no. she um, <laughs> <laughs> went on to to write. Well, I mean the short stories is what she's she's most known for, perhaps or most immediately. Known I think for. that's right. Yeah, um, and it seems I've been trying to find out uh, about Anthony Burgess's reading of O'Connor. It seems he did read quite a lot of it. He reviewed everything that rises must converge, very positively in uh, 1965, mm-hmm. and um, he and obviously Wise Blood appears in his selection here. It's a, he's, a, She's a writer that he keeps coming back to. Um, and so by the mid 80s, when he's compiling his sort of overview of 20th century literature, I wondered what sort of reputation her novel and her other writing might have had by that point.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, well, as I mentioned, you know, she was well connected um, in terms of uh, the literati. And so, you know, one of the stories that people mention sometimes is that when she was training at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, she read *Understanding Fiction*, which was edited by Robert Penn Warren and Cleanth Brooks, and um, they were both people she was connected to through the Writers' Workshop. And one of her own short stories was in the next edition. So she, in a lot of ways, you know, is is kind of embraced and and becomes a fairly canonical writer uh, even in her own lifetime. Although uh, it's probably worth mentioning in case some people aren't familiar that she she did have a short life. She died at thirty nine. Uh, from complications related to lupus, um, and so you know, I think I think you know, even at the at the time when Burgess was reviewing um, everything that rises must converge, that's already a posthumously published work of hers because she passes away in 1964. So um, so book length studies of O'Connor's work did begin to appear in the late 60s and 70s, and then I think the more work uh, came out. Mystery and Manners was published, which is a collection of her occasional prose. That comes out in 1969 at the behest of her literary executors, Robert and Sally Fitzgerald. Then you have the publication of the complete stories in 1971, and that makes her short fiction available in chronological order. That also includes some of the short stories that were later turned into Wise Blood. Um, And then the Flannery O'Connor Bulletin is founded in 1972 at her alma mater, Georgia College. That publication eventually becomes the Flannery O'Connor Review, um, and so there's really already a pretty a pretty sizable, um, you know, critical conversation happening about Flannery O'Connor by the 70s and certainly by 1984. 1979, John Huston makes a film adaptation of Wise Blood and that comes out. And so there's definitely, I think, um, you know, a, a, a real readership for it, both a kind of popular readership and a scholarly readership.
1: Did the popular readership, do you think, um, come to terms with? what Flannery O'Connor was doing, because there are, you know, there's quite a lot of difficult stuff to deal with, um, not least the religious content, um, which is very foremost, I think, in, in Wise Blood. And indeed, Burgess describes Wise Blood as an essentially religious novel. And how far do you think people responded to that? And do you think that is, in fact, a, a good description of what she's doing?
2: I, I do think people responded to that, although I think that, again, those responses are kind of mixed Um you may know that the, um, the the second edition of Wise Blood, when it, when it's um, renewed ten years after, so it's published in '52, and then there's a second edition that comes out in 1962, where O'Connor writes a kind of prefatory note that is, in a lot of ways, a kind of authorial clarification of her own intent, because I think the book, you know, um, it's 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 complex, and I think it sets up a lot of binaries, and then it collapses a lot of those same binaries, and so. I think it's very it's a, it's a novel that's very possible to read um kind of, you know, with a with an affirmative religious vision <laughs> as the conclusion or with the opposite, you know. And, and I think um even in O'Connor's own lifetime people are kind of picking up on that and and arguing that like while she may see herself as writing with a catholic sensibility, you know, some some readers found, you know, a kind of demonic vision in the book and Uh, John Hawks wrote to O'Connor. He was a correspondent of hers and also a reviewer of hers and ended up making the argument that O'Connor, despite her own stated Catholicism and her stated intentions, was more of the devil's party than not in her fiction and kind of argued that it didn't even really carry out her own vision that the book kind of did something different. And so I think it ends up attracting both kinds of readers. I think they're the people who, who read it because of the depth and the seriousness with which it grapples with questions of faith. And then I think it's possible to read it um, kind of about the ways that religious obsession can can miscarry, can destroy lives, can, um, you know, just, I guess the dangers of fundamentalism would be one way to, to think about it and to read it. And then, you know, all kinds of people, punk bands, people like it for all kinds of yes. reasons yeah. and draw lines from it, take lines for their band names, for their song lines and so on. So, I think I think uh, lots of people find lots of things to respond to, not all in, in the kind of realm of what O'Connor herself would have identified herself as doing, but I think she would have liked that too. I think she was a serious enough writer and and interested in having a readership that even kind of what Robert Donahue has called heathen or misreadings, I think, were not unwelcome for her.
1: That's really interesting. They, yeah, she does seem to um, allow for... Uh, well a kind of openness of interpretation yes. um yeah and it's interesting what you say about uh, some critics imagining she might somehow be of the, the devil's party because uh-huh. uh, burgess himself was well he's interested in these questions i suppose his his novel earthly powers is very concerned with you know the possibility w- the possibility of the pope perhaps uh, being an emissary of the devil mm-hmm. and uh, you know what, what what implications that might have yes. for the catholic church yes. and so it's uh, yeah it's very much sort of Grappling with similar, similar material, maybe, but albeit in very different ways. Um, Burgess does quote O'Connor very approvingly when she talks about her own work, and I'm going to say, uh, read it out now. I think uh, she says that the fiction writer presents mystery through manners, grace through nature, but when the fiction writer finishes, there always has to be left over that sense of mystery, which cannot be accounted for by any human formula, and perhaps this relates to the open-endedness that we were talking about, but I wondered if you felt that that statement captured some of what she achieves in her work.
2: I do think so. I think especially that can be a fruitful way to read. I think that the best readings don't try to overly resolve that mystery or, um, you know, kind of um, murder to dissect. (laughs) Um, I, I think that unfortunately, Um, there can be some critical impulses to do that at times. And I think O'Connor kind of creates a, a tricky scenario for readers because I think on the one hand, her work can be so disorienting that I think a lot of readers can feel like they want some kind of guide or they want someone to explicate it for them. They know they've had a strong and powerful experience and now there's the kind of what does it mean question. And I think that, that, interest rather than kind of actually grappling with the book can make us wanna, you know, I mean, take to the internet now or, you know, uh figure out what other people have said and kind of resolve it for ourselves. Um but I think I think in some ways to if if a reader has the sort of um uh presence of mind to sit and grapple that perhaps might be more fruitful. I think though it's it's been um interesting to watch because I think O'Connor in a lot of ways did more to explicate her own work and clarify her own intentions than a lot of artists will. And I think in some ways that has kind of um, it, I think it's had a way of, of forestalling our engagement with mystery in her work, because I think, you know, it can get really reduced to the formulaic. And I think that uh, a lot of, a lot of critics in particular, not all, certainly there have been a number who have, have, um, you know, kind of argued for that openness and, and made, wonderful and important inroads along those lines for a long time now. But I also think there can be a kind of tendency to think that because you can find essays and letters where she really kind of lays out her own understanding of what she was doing, that, that, you know, you could eliminate some of that mystery or sidestep some of the discomfort that her fiction can give rise to. But I would try to, I mean, it it might be the, the teacher in me, but I would try to argue, argue hard for, Uh, the good of, of a deeper grappling than that to not kind of try to just quickly find a resolution or some sort of, um, you know, uh, explanation that says, this is why this, this is why this violence is actually grace and it shouldn't bother you or whatever. I'm not kind of a, you know, I think one of the quick summations people often sort of offer for O'Connor is that, um, you know, her, her fiction is, is doing um, kind of like transformation through, through violence or, uh, grace through violence, and so you know i think even that can can be reductive in a way that although that's a kind of complex proposition um I think even that can have a way of uh forestalling our engagement with mysteries so i think she's i think she's right to to name those dynamics, but i I think that um we ha you know the best reading will sit with them rather than trying to um resolve them
1: well yeah and i' i felt that i mean even some of her imagery invites that kind of um very well almost simplistic interpretation sometimes you know there's the, the bit in wise blood where a cloud comes to hazel moats and it's uh, it's lit by this blinding light and it looks like it's got a beard yes. and uh, you kind of well this the symbolism is, is pretty much on the nose i think yes. but, but yes. at the same time well it, during the reading experience i at least was quite happy to sit with that you know i didn't really mind because it's wrapped up in this very kind of complicated and unsettling and quite disturbing world you don't feel like you're being preached to
2: uh-huh I think um, that's right
1: uh I well I certainly found that very exciting um to read Good. um I wondered if we could talk about another thing that Burgess says and indeed O'Connor says about Wiseblood, which is that it's a comic novel and you, you've already mentioned that some critics identified Wiseblood as such on publication and compared it uh, indeed to Kafka. I, w- I wondered if you could say a little bit about the comedy in the novel and perhaps in O'Connor's work generally, because it's quite unexpected, I think.
2: I think that's true. I mean, I think I think there are some lines in the book that are funny in a straight-ahead way and, and would make almost any reader chuckle, but I also think that um, on a kind of deeper level, uh, a lot of the comedy in the book is dark comedy, and I think um, it comes from an awareness that um you know that that kind of laughter or a recognition of humor are in some ways sort of counterintuitively uh logical responses to to pain to tragedy to um kind of big questions and even just to human foibles and ridiculousness uh i mean i think i think a lot of the comedy comes from irony and and the way that um, there's just a series of reversals. Hazel exists, I think, as a as a foil to a lot of other characters in the book um, and as a double to a lot of other characters in the book. And so some of the, the comedy comes from that. But then there's just kind of straight-ahead funny things, even some slapstick things. The book has a, a person in a gorilla costume who shakes hands with people and, um, you know, it's one of the kind of funnier, the Ganga scenes, I think, are some of the funnier scenes in the book. Um,
1: there's but a a kind of, of it, a, Sorry. No, no, please. Well, I was just going to point out the the absurdity of it. I suppose because it's. uh, I suppose when I was reading it, I found it so kind of unexpected. You know, discombobulating those kind. Yeah, the gorilla. Yes, I think that's right. Hazel again. I'm probably spoiling it, but uh, Hazel. disposes of one of his rivals by running him over in his car over and over again (laughs) it's kind of you know overkill (laughs) there's a sort of madness to it yes i think that's right i think that's right and i
2: think kafka and and o'connor are both really interested with in interested in religious strangeness um and and um you know even though i think they're thinking seriously about it and taking it seriously you can't help but recognize how absurd sometimes the claims of religion can seem from certain vantage points, even to the devout. Um, and so I think I think there's a way in which the books kind of lay that out. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's both kind of serious and funny.
1: And one of the words Burgess uses to, to describe the comedy is that it's fierce, which I thought was quite an interesting. Word In relation to Wise Blood, because, um, well, the hat that Hazel Moats wears throughout is described as a fierce hat. I think that happens five or six times. And um, he describes her life as having been fiercely lived. It just struck me as quite a luminous phrase. And I, I wondered if you felt it was a useful way of thinking about O'Connor as a fierce writer.
2: I love it. I think that it's a, a great way of thinking about O'Connor, and I think you could almost sort of pick your index of her ferocity. I think she's kind of ferocious on several levels. I would say uh, as a writer and as a, as a craftsperson, she was ferocious in revision. I think she rewrote Wise Blood over a five-year period, and her drafts are available in the archives now. And uh, so some scholars pour over those and, and kind of look at how the work evolved. And there are lots and lots of drafts and, and she held herself to very high standards and, and um, that took a ton of work. So she was a disciplined writer and a serious and ferocious reviser. She took pretty serious feedback from other writers that she trusted and she would really w- rework things um, based on, you know, the, the input that she was getting. So I think that's one index. I think another index of her ferocity is the way that all the work that she did she did while she had lupus as i as i referenced which is a disease that had killed her father when she was a teenager um and like all uh, chronic and degenerative conditions it was painful it required ongoing treatment that had its own set of side effects and difficulties so so she was doing all that work while she was experiencing a lot of pain and discomfort uh, she ended up on crutches uh, at points in her life and it caused a lot of swelling in her body. And so I think it takes ferocity to kind of continue to uh, sit and do your work while your body's going through a lot of um, uh, pain. So I also would would highlight her ferocious wit. I think anyone who's had a chance to dip into her collected letters will find what a, what a funny writer she is. And, um, you know, I think um, critical of herself as well as um the people around her but but i think not just that uh but but you know i think uh loving too in a lot of ways but um uh, but but just a keen a keen observer and um yeah a a funny a funny personal writer too i think
1: um i I certainly got the impression with this work and and some of her her others that it never rests you know there's no um there's no let up yeah, and, I think uh, that's right. <laughs> for me, that was that was quite a yeah a strong indication of her fierceness of her yes, ferocity. That's a um, good way. To you know, describe you, it. you don't yeah you don't get a break.
2: Really. Yep, yep. Uh,
1: and uh, and I, from what you're saying, it sounds like she didn't give herself much of a break. I think that's she, right. I do. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, and maybe no. I mean, having like I said, having kind of seen her father die, I'm sure she, she had some sense that it could take her life and end her life at a, even a young age. So perhaps. I don't know totally what role that played but I think and of course we all live knowing we'll die and yet I think to have kind of a um, a more immediate cause at hand can feel especially like it adds that intensity
1: so. Well it certainly seems like it it burnt very brightly for yes. her yes. And, um, and, and as you say there was a uh, you know a gathering interest in her work um, during her lifetime and after her death. But now it's been a while now, 70 years since Wise Blood was written, and obviously her work and her legacy is still being reassessed. Um, But I wondered if you could just say something about what you thought O'Connor's reputation is today and what what contemporary readers might, might take from it.
2: I would say that on the one hand, her reputation is alive and well. I've heard people say that of all American women writers, O'Connor gets the most critical attention. Uh, as I mentioned, she has a scholarly journal dedicated to her work and there's certainly a stream of ongoing critical and popular engagement with her work. Uh, she gets name checked by the Cohen brothers and Bruce Springsteen and Lucinda Williams. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, I think alive and well, I think, um, uh, you know, the work of the Flannery O'Connor Review and of uh, Bruce Gentry in particular with the work that he's been doing in um, the National Humanities Institutes that have, uh, there, there have been two of them, one in 2007 and one in 2014, which I participated in, which I think have done a lot to kind of keep, keep trying to um, consider what else O'Connor's fiction could mean. I think that work has done a lot to kind of uh, call scholars to fresh readings and new ways of approaching her. So so on the one hand, on, on that hand, I think um, things are going well. On the other hand, I think, as I mentioned, because there is so much of kind of O'Connor reading O'Connor, there can be, I think, a tendency on the part of some to sort of take a calcified approach to her work or to produce readings that are sort of just saying, once again, yes, she was a Catholic writer. Yes, she was a Southern writer. Um, and I think that can that can have a kind of narrowing effect. Um, and so as I mentioned, I think a lot of a lot of work is also being done to kind of um, uh, keep steering us in new directions and and not just to kind of consider how she understood her own project, but to really consider what the work itself suggests and to give it kind of the broadest set of readings that it can have and and that, it, that I think it deserves and that it invites. So I, I think I would also mention that I think this has been an important, just even in the last few years, it's been an important time for naming the ways that white supremacy and that racial segregation shaped O'Connor. And I think that really should come as no surprise to us that she didn't transcend her context in thinking about race and writing about race. I see us all as affected by white supremacy, and I see us all as needing to unlearn the ways in which our context shapes our conscious and unconscious ways of thinking about race. So I don't, I don't think of that as a reason not to read O'Connor, but I also really don't think of it as a thing to, to uh, pretend doesn't exist or or uh, that you won't find. Um, I think I think one reason that readers have been surprised to to learn about uh, some of the racist comments that you can find her her making in personal letters, or even the ways that I think from from a 21st century standpoint, uh, her own fiction can can make readers uncomfortable. Um, I think part of the reason why that surprises some people is because I think parts of her letters and her archive have been controlled by family and friends. And I think there has been a kind of tendency on the part of some editors and um, and and people in charge to kind of um remove some of the casual racism from O'Connor's personal correspondence or kind of downplay it. I also think there are some people who really admire O'Connor to the point where they want her to stand for, you know, I think a a kind of serious and compelling religious figure in a context that might feel de- devoid of of uh people that have that kind of level of um I don't know, uh respect maybe that they command but um I think if 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 that leads to some sort of impulse to claim that she wasn't racist or that her work doesn't kind of present uh, race in troubling ways, that that's misguided. Um, so I think I think um, it's I, w- I guess at the same time I would say I think her work you know if you if you read it straight through from the earliest things she wrote to the latest things she wrote, I I do think you see development and progress in her thinking around racism, I think she becomes, she she moves from using racist stereotypes in her fiction. Um mean, I've written about, in my essay in the collection deals with a short story that she wrote as an undergraduate student called The Place of Action, where she writes about Black people wearing zoot suits. And it's just full of racist stereotypes. Um, so that's, but that's also really early. And I think, you know, you can contrast that with um, her late fiction, which is, I think, Uh, critical of of um, the racism of of white people and uh, even kind of using that as the as the butt of um, kind of the the stories that she's writing and I think you can also see her recognizing the ways in which race is socially constructed and questioning that so I think there's I think there is progress there and I think it's important to recognize that her thinking does what I hope all kind of serious people will do which is you know keep examining themselves and keep keep growing but um but I'm troubled by by a by especially on uh, an impulse on the part of critics to kind of try to say she wasn't racist or explain it away or just say she's a product of her time as if um those things kind of you know should should mean it it doesn't trouble us I think for some readers it's it's you know even the fiction itself and the way that characters in dialogue will use the n word and so on is such that they don't even care to engage it. And I think on some levels, I can understand why people would feel that way. Um, i I still think her fiction has a lot of powerful things to offer. I would say it's still worth reading if you if you can if you are not put off by that. um I think I think um one thing I would say or highlight, I guess, in terms of what her work has to offer in uh, maybe especially to our moment is that Uh, It has, I think, an insider's critique of where religious faith can distort into destructive self-righteousness. And I think that's rare. I think we so often think of kind of um, critiques of religion coming from the outside. But I think O'Connor is, um, in the same way that she's fierce about a lot of things, I think she's fiercely critical of the church, but but as someone who loves it, not as someone who would say we're better off without it. And, And so I think, you know, the ferocity of her critique made some people again kind of question whether her fiction was really doing what she thought it was doing. But um, I think to kind of listen to that insider's observation about about um, the way that even kind of being, a you know, she writes famously, a good man is hard to find. And a, a story like that kind of takes this idea of religious goodness and shows kind of how even attempts to be good can be so kind of morally corrupting or distorting. And that's profound. That's, I think, complicated and, and again, kind of worth sitting with and worth struggling with. So those, those are a few pieces that I would kind of highlight about her legacy, thinking about it uh, at this, at this
1: vantage point well that's great thank you for addressing the, those questions so directly uh because it's i mean none of this is easy and i don't think flannery o'connor is alone actually
2: no in, i think that's um, right yeah
1: <laughs> in, in in this um that's but, right you know uh there's and it's clear to me at least that there's that there's every reason to continue to read her work and i can i can see you know from our conversation and from what others have written about it that you know there's uh there's plenty to unpack even now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um before we end, though, I I wondered. Well, I, as you know, for in this selection, Berge, Anthony Burgess picked ninety nine of his favorite novels. Um, so we were wondering. We're going to ask everyone this: uh, What would, the, what should the hundredth be? What would you pick if you
2: could? Mm. Uh, my pick for the hundredth book would be "The Bluest Eye" by Toni Morrison, which was published in nineteen seventy. And I'll just highlight two reasons that that this one would make my list. I think um, the first is just the way that I think Morrison really re- refuses to dehumanize any of her characters even you know it's it's a novel that also involves really difficult things it involves incest and rape and um you know a, a father who rapes his own daughter and i think even in writing about that most difficult thing um morrison never she 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 insists that writers i think sit with um how this father Charlie Breed love Uh, kind of became a person who would do this in in a really humanizing way without letting him off the hook I think at all but but without kind of turning him into a monster and I really admire that I think that that's you know how do you how do you kind of write about some of the most horrendous things that people can do to other people um, without kind of going into one ditch or the other Um, so I, I, I admire how she does that I think I think there's a lesson in there for all readers and um, you know, not in excusing it in any way, but also not in um, kind of turning it into a, a reason to see someone as completely different from any, any way we could see ourselves or anything that we could become. Um, so I think that's one kind of profound contribution that the that the book makes. I would say that the other uh, is just the way that it makes white ideology visible. I think I, I'm a white woman, and I think that for me in my own um, kind of thinking through uh questions of race i think it's been a it's been a profound book i never knew tony morrison personally but i feel like she's been my teacher in thinking about how so many of the things that for me were just kind of part of life as a default or just the way things were uh turn out to be pretty far from just the way things are but are actually ways we've made things to be so it's a book that that uh, kind of makes readers think a lot about beauty standards and the way that you know the blue eye of the title um uh, shapes how the the main character, the young black girl Nicola Breedlove, how she sees herself and, and what she ends up wishing for her life, and um, so I, I think it's an amazing an amazing book on a lot of levels and a book I would recommend heartily to anyone who hasn't read it yet.
1: Well, thanks, Alison. That's fantastic. And well, before I close, I just want to point towards your book, which is Reconsidering Flannery O'Connor, edited with Jordan Kofa, and that's with the University Press of Mississippi came out last year. And it's That's a right. fantastic wide rating collection of new approaches to Flannery O'Connor, uh, much, to, much to get into, I think. <laughs> and, uh, oh. <laughs> and, it show, and it shows where, well, where O'Connor scholarship is, is up to right now. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Alison. My
2: pleasure. Thank right. you. It's great to speak with you. Right.
0: You've been listening to 99 Novels a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Reconsidering Flannery O'Connor, edited by Alison Arant and Jordan Colfer, is out now from the University Press of Mississippi. You can find links to more information about Flannery O'Connor in the description of this episode. For more about Anthony Burgess, and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor. It's performed by No Dice Collective, who can be found online at nodicecollective.com. If you'd like to join the conversation, and choose your 100th novel to add to the list, you can use the hashtag 99novels on Twitter. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.